Hello again, foolish mortals, to the Rotten Horror Picture Show. The show, the horror movie podcast, where we talk about films off of the Rotten Tomatoes 200 Greatest Horror Movies of All Time list in a fairly random order. My name's Clay, and with me, as always, is Amanda. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually very <laughs> excited about what we're going to talk about today because it's a movie very close to my heart. And we have to hurry up and get through it so you can get to your reservation at Dorcia? Listen, I can't get a reservation at Dorcia. <laughs> I can trick somebody into thinking it's Dorcia who's never been there, but I can't, I don't, I can't get a res at Dorcia. But yeah, I'm not going anywhere without a reservation. Uh, we're talking about American Psycho. From uh, 2000, which is which from the year 2000, which also hurt me because it's 20 years old. American Psycho is 20 wow. years old. It's a lifetime ago for Christian Bale. <laughs> you know, this is like yeah, it's yeah, this is like Batman proto Bale. Yeah. Uh, it's number 197 out of 200 on this list. It has a 69 percent tomato score with a 74.165 adjusted score, Whoa. which puts it at number one. 97 which is i'm still surprised like starry i'm still surprised starry eyes didn't make the list because starry eyes is higher than this yeah there's there's a couple things i'm a little surprised aren't on this list where this one is yeah we will we'll get into that stuff though um what's your uh what's your history with this movie do you have any um you've seen it before obviously yes i have and uh everyone will be shocked to hear this statement but i also read the book Mm. I bet you're sensing a little bit of a theme here at this point. Um, yeah, I went through that sort of angsty teenage phase where uh, your self-loathing manifests in just general misogyny when you're a teenage girl. Sweet. Uh, so yeah, like Fight Club and mm-hmm. this were like my faves for quite a while. That's that's really fascinating to me. Really? Because not not that not the fact that you read those books when you mm. were younger, but like I didn't even know this existed until I saw the movie. Oh. Like, I didn't know about the movie. I didn't know about well, the book. Well, I didn't know about Brett Easton Ellis until I saw the movie. And then a friend of mine was like, if you like the movie, you should read the book. And yeah. that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. Um, I don't remember the order of operations mm-hmm. of. And this is, I'm talking college. I was in yeah. college. When oh, I was. OK. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, I was definitely in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie was definitely already out. Yeah. OK. Um, so I can't remember if I movie first book second or book first movie second uh i also had the benefit of having a older brother who's about two years older than me Mm -hmm. so i'm sure some of this stuff trickled into my life that's how it works that's how it should work with these movies that's why they're so great yeah because other people show them to you and you're like oh i'm not supposed to watch that and then you watch it and it's like oh this is great yeah my mom was real confused at some of the references that we were making in like the year 2005 Mm -hmm. about like oh god just just the i have to return some videotapes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all the time my I mom will say, my mom was always like but blockbuster closed what are you talking about? <laughs> i will say that uh as i was watching this this time i haven't seen it in a long time uh i did it all came back to me at how much i actually referenced this movie and mm. like small little bits that are my favorite lines that i use a lot yeah yeah that have just sort of become these like amorphous pop culture references that we don't always connect back to the source material anymore yes. because they're so omnipresent yes like the well i'll get into it later but yeah. uh are you a fan of the movie Com- uh, how do you feel about the movie versus the book um i always end up liking the movie more than i thought i did like mm-hmm. I-, I haven't rewatched it much in the last few years but 
I feel like the book scarred me <laughs> in a way. Yeah. So every time I think about the work in general, part of my brain always like kind of thinks of the book and just goes, "Oh, do you book. do you really want to do that? Do you really want to do that?" And then I watch the movie, and the movie brings the the absurdity and the the black humor and the gallows humor mm. and and the sort of satirical bent out more. Um, so I always walk away from the movie uh, laughing a little bit more than I thought I would, and kind of a little relieved. Yeah. It doesn't go as far as the book goes. Yes, I also, even someone who is a big horror movie fan and I'm no stranger to gory movies, yeah. I also am glad that they did not go as far yeah. as the book goes. Yeah, there are some things that <clears throat> don't need to be put on film no, and no. Uh, they're in that book. Sure are. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself, um, as I said, I came to this movie freshman year of college, I think, and uh, I loved it immediately. And it quickly became one of my favorite movies. And when I was a senior in college, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, because of, you know, the stupidness of schedules and my own laziness, I, my first semester of college, I ended up pulling like two all-nighters a week for the entire semester. And every time I was up all night working, I would watch American Psycho and The Big Lebowski. Wow. Yeah. And so that was like my routine for working through the Getting night. Getting two very different influences. Yeah. As I say <laughs> those, that, those as I say that movies. out loud, I realize it's not that far off from doing a bunch of crunches while watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. <laughs> but let's just say that which I'm, is what you were actually doing. Yeah. No, you're, you're, I was. I was you're trust me. One thousand crunches. I was doing no crunches. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll play the trailer real quick, and then we'll come back and talk about it. New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Patrick, you're so sweet. Jean? Yes, Patrick? Would you like to accompany me to dinner? Sabrina, why don't you dance a little? Christy, get down on your knees. We're not through yet. That's a wonderful suit. You look so soft. I don't think I can control myself. If you stay, something bad will happen. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. have any witnesses or fingerprints actually yes hmm you're inhuman i know my uh behavior can be erratic sometimes hey paul so what do you do i'm into uh well murders and executions mostly I have all the characteristics of a human being, but not a single clear, identifiable emotion. I simply am not there. I, uh... (laughs) I just had to kill a lot of people! (laughs) 
So, 2000's American Psycho, directed by Mary Harron, written by Mary Harron and Guinevere Turner, based on the novel by Brett Easton Ellis, which was published in 1991, starring Christian Bale, Reese Witherspoon, Willem Dafoe, Chloe Sevigny, and some hey-those-guys, like the guy, <laughs> the bad guy from Silicon Valley and mm. uh, Reg E. Cathy, who is, he shows up and stuff. He was the uh, barbecue guy in uh, House of Cards. Oh. Yeah, he's the guy who gets stabbed with the dog in this one. Oh. Yeah. I don't know why he always stood out, but he, he always stood out to me. Yeah, and, and don't forget uh, everybody's favorite Joker, Jared Leto. Yes, Jared Leto, yeah. <laughs> there are... <laughs> There are multiple Academy Award winners in this movie, mm-hmm. and also Josh Lucas. <laughs> so, Aww. Amanda, what happens in American Psycho? In New York City in 1987, a handsome young urban professional, Patrick Bateman, lives a second life as a gruesome serial killer by night. The cast is filled by the detective, the fiancé, the mistress, the co-worker, and the secretary. This is a biting wry comedy examining the elements that make a man a monster. And you might enjoy this movie if you enjoy death by music snobbery, carnivorous ATM machines, naked chainsaw sprinting, corpse-based redecorating, and questionable Questionable parenting. parenting. Which, if you're wondering where that comes up, he does say, give me a break, I'm a child of divorce, (laughs) which is one of the lines I used to quote all the time, which never made any sense because I am not. (laughs) And I missed that line entirely when you when you first proposed the questionable parenting kind of bingo square on this mm-hmm. one too. I was like, "Wait, really?" I'm going to find a way to wedge it into every one of these movies. Have so. we have we gotten it into every one? Or was, so far, uh, yes. really? I okay, so yeah. I thought we missed one, but I could be I could be wrong. Um, so uh, this is based on a book that we talked about, obviously. That is. Mm-hmm. Uh, reviled i guess is a good word to use it was yeah. banned in certain places yeah um the original publisher dropped it did they really yeah they, oh, wow. they pretty much told ellis uh keep the money just go away wow yeah so yeah it's uh it's quite a book uh it's very graphic and uh it's generally as for, as far as i know it's generally regarded as a fairly misogynist piece of work mm. which is why i find it so fascinating and beneficial mm-hmm. that it was written by two women. The, yeah. the adaptation was written by two women yeah. and it was directed by a woman. Yep. Because I feel like it being a satire of the 80s, and I think it's it's almost like a perfect satire. I think it works really, really well. Yeah. And it being a satire of the 80s and being such a... a, a Patrick Bateman being such a monstrous character, mm-hmm. I think these women managed to bring an extra bite and extra nuance to how shitty of a character he was yeah. and how shitty of the uh, the era was. Like a lot of the stuff that, that he ends up, that they end up pulling out as him being uh, shitty to people is mm-hmm. very, is feels a lot more minor. It's not really the big things. It's like the telling his secretary not to wear that shirt anymore. Yeah. You know, it's his, his, his attitude is, is very... Um, it's very, it's very uh, uh, sly and biting the way that they kind of uh, subvert him as a character. Yeah, and and I think it's important when you do sort of get that female um, bent to the the like 
the production because when you you're speaking as a female as a female yeah. <laughs> um, but no when you when you watch the movie uh, and you pay attention to the way that Patrick Bateman interacts with other men mm-hmm. um he's not really the alpha male in the group no no that's the I think that's the biggest yeah and thing, and, thing about his character in the movie yeah and when other I, I do want to talk in a second about all the different um, mistaken identity cases yes throughout it but before we jump fully into that, when other men mistake him for someone else, mm-hmm. oh, that's Davis, that's Halberstram. If Patrick Bateman comes up in conversation, they're like, oh, that dork. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that spineless wimp. Like, they all kind of, like, make fun of him, even to him. And then you see him sort of kind of have to just sit there and take it. Yeah. Uh, he very rarely retaliates towards other men. And... Instead, he gets to act like a giant pile of shit towards women. Mm -hmm. And you can see him kind of taking it out on them. And you can see them react to him where they sort of, I I at least read it as most of the women in this movie, maybe aside from his fiance, kind of sense that there's something really wrong with him Mm -hmm. in a way that the other, that the men don't notice. Yeah. I don't think the men notice anything. No, no, they don't. They notice nothing but themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's I've I've always found it to be a really fascinating character because you've got this Patrick Bateman who is a uh, vice president in a who works in mergers and acquisitions. They're all vice presidents, yes, all though, vi- which I love. Yeah, <laughs> he's a vice president, which should be a big deal. Yeah. but he's one of a shitload of vice yeah. presidents. Every guy in this movie is a vice president. Yes. Of some Wal- name, yeah. well, Pearson Pierce, Pierce but, or... but basically faceless Wall Street company. Yeah, and. Um, I think the, 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 the biggest inroad to his character is when he's arguing with his, uh, with Reese Witherspoon in the car and she's like, why do you want to keep that Mm. job? He says, because I want to fit in. Yeah. And his, he is on such a quest to fit in that he just ends up disappearing completely. Yeah. And, and, and when he doesn't disappear, he's like vaguely unsettling. Mm-hmm. Like I think I think I know I just I'm kind of kind of contradict what I just said, but there are definitely moments where he sort of goes off in one of his little monologues in in front of everybody, um, and you can sort of see all the other characters around the table are a little bit like, all right, all right Bateman, okay, mm-hmm. like. You see it especially when he start, starts starts uh, dropping serial killer trivia yes. <laughs> casually into yeah. conversations. Um, so there's this element of like the uncanny valley about him, mm-hmm. where he's like almost a human but not quite. And everybody sort of starts over the course of the movie. If they hadn't already seen it, they definitely do towards the end, where it's sort of like, no, there's just something fucking off about that guy. Yeah, like he's just not right. Like he's never gonna fit in. Yeah. And part of that is his like psychotic need to fit in is going to prevent him from ever fitting in yeah and what's brilliant about it is he he kind of he he kind of swings both ways at the same time where Mm -hmm. he's desperate to fit in but because he's so desperate to fit in he's disappeared yeah and he's desperate to not disappear so or he's desperate he's desperate to to still be someone yeah so he's killing people (laughs) <laughs> maybe or maybe not mm. um as a as sort of like a way to reclaim some sort of self about everything yeah and even when he does that nobody gives a shit like yeah, nobody, nobody notices, notices what he's doing yep it's like you know th- which is uh um 
I love the uh, the speech he has at the end of the movie after, mm-hmm. after he he's confessed to his lawyer. Yep. Frantically, this is like he's hit the breaking point. He's convinced, confessed to everything. Yep. Then he goes to talk to his lawyer, and his lawyer doesn't even know who he is. Yeah. And he doesn't <laughs> yeah. believe the story. And then after that, he gives this little monologue. It's, it's one of the best monologues, and that that's the thing. You know, not not to talk too much about the book because this is a movie podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing I think is such uh, it's it sucks so much about how panned the book was in in its way where like Brett Easton Ellis is actually a really great writer. Mm. Um, and, you know, he writes these monologues that that end monologue is if I'm remembering correctly, I could be wrong. <laughs> um, uh, if not the majority of it, then a good deal of it is is taken directly from the book. Yeah, I think um, a, a lot of the dialogue and yeah, a lot of his his inner book, his yeah. inner monologue. I think a lot of it's taken directly from the book, and it's such a you know, it's like beautiful language, but it also reveals so much about his mental state and mm-hmm. his his interior life without it just being like. And then Patrick was crazy. It's like I don't know. I, yeah. I just think Ellis is a great writer. And a lot of that got sort of subsumed in the controversy. Right. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. And I think the key line in there is when he says this confession has meant nothing. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, the the arc of a serial killer, generally, it seems like anyway, mm-hmm. is like the end goal is this sort of, for them, is this sort of catharsis of recognition of everything a that they've done. A lot of them, yeah. That's why they always, when they get caught, they end up telling about everything they've done and about stuff that they haven't done yeah, and, and that's, up. that's why some of them get caught because there's like right. btk just could not stop fucking writing letters to the cops because he oh, really wanted guy. them to know what he had guy. done <laughs> yeah but but that that yeah that craving for recognition to kind of carve out a place in the world where, where you're going to be remembered and never mm-hmm. forgotten and and be kind of seen as you know this permanent figure yeah and and i think Bateman wants that. And he doesn't get it. No. That's the thing. He no, gets he to just, that point. He just he blends in point. still. He can't escape this like, you're just completely mediocre. Yeah. Like you're not even the guy who's sort of the worst guy in the group. Mm-hmm. You're just like some schmuck who tags along. Yeah. And he gets to that point with his madness mm-hmm. where he does confess and everything should come crashing down around right, him. But right. it doesn't. So that that twisted sense of catharsis that you would get as one of those awful people yeah. never comes. Yeah. And he's just stuck in the same rut that he was stuck in before. Exactly. Before he started killing people. Yeah, he never gets his recognition. Do you um do you think he kill he actually is killing people? 
Um, if we want to get into body count, the body count is between 12 and 40. I've killed 20, maybe 40 people. Yeah. It's between 12 and 40 or possibly zero, depending on your read of the story. And the thing yeah. that I find great about it is I think it works either way. It does. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, the theme of the movie and the character doesn't fall apart, even if he hasn't been killing anybody. Yeah. Um, it's... I, I kind of like I don't I don't know if I want to take a stance mm-hmm. one way or the other because yeah it is it is so easy to argue either way um I think the movie leans more heavily towards it's in his head yeah yeah I th- uh on second watch like the first time I watched it that stuff didn't totally click with me because it's fairly mm-hmm. subtle when they oh, actually yeah. get into that aside from the him going to Paul Allen's apartment and there not being anybody there yeah. Um, or I should say all of his carnage is not there. Yeah. Um, but on second watch, I, I started picking up a lot more of the stuff after that. Like, not only that scene, but when he starts uh, shooting at the cop car. Oh, yeah. The cop it's, car explodes. It's like two, two, two yeah. it's maybe more than two shots, but he kind of looks at the gun like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, even exactly. he knows, like, that's not how that's supposed to work. Yeah, there's just like yeah. this... this uh, amplification of the crazy uh, the oh, ATM yeah. machine that says "Feed me a stray <laughs> cat." I used to write "Feed me a stray cat" on things. See, you, I, I did the same shit. I, yep. The thing I always, the, I, Sorry, one of the lines Mom. I use all the time is, uh, "It's such a douchey thing to say." But uh, when he says, um, when he has Chloe Savigny over for dinner, mm-hmm. and he's like, "What do you want to do with your life?" Briefly summarize. <laughs> I say that a lot. The briefly summarize part. So listen. What do you really want to do with your life? Just briefly summarize, and uh, don't tell me you enjoy working with children. Okay. Oh man. Oh god. No, I, I. You know. So. I think. I think if we're you know just looking at the movie, I think it is all in his head. Yeah. I, I think because of those kind of more clear signifiers of of he's going through some sort of psychotic break um, with the ATM machine talking to him or sending him messages. Um, Going back to Paul Allen's apartment, and there isn't absolutely no evidence of any horribly brutal murders. Mm-hmm. Um, he blows up cop cars and gets chased by a helicopter into his office, and yet no one comes after him. Um, yeah, I and I and I think even just seeing that end scene with Jean, uh, Chloe Sevigny's mm-hmm. character. And she's in his office flipping through his agenda book and his notebook. And it's all just these horrible doodles. Yep. I think everything has just been his daydreams while yeah. he's been fucking around in his office doing nothing, listening to Jeopardy. Yeah. I think that's that that probably is the more. Yeah. Well, and then and then the lawyer even says, you couldn't have killed Paul Allen. Yeah. I had dinner with him twice but while I was in London. Even still, that still falls under the umbrella of people mistaking people for everybody else. Because mm. earlier in the movie, someone says they saw Paul Allen in London, but yep. it wasn't him. And I think uh, what's Halberstram and yeah, <laughs> I think what's beautiful about the way that that ends up falling, where you could go on either side of the fence, is mm-hmm. if he is killing people, then he is uh, his cry for help is still, or his cry for uh, notice me mm-hmm. is still being ignored, yeah, by his 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 peer group, yep. And if he's not killing people. He is, uh, he hates the system that he's in, mm-hmm. but he can't even bring himself to actually rebel against it. You yeah. know, like he's just, he's just thinking about it, but he's not doing anything. So right. he's just like stewing in it. 
Yep. Where he he both loves the system and hates the system, but he can't bring himself to do anything about it. Yeah. So it works. I think it works really well either way. And that's as if you're going for an ambiguous ending, I think that's the perfect. Uh, in order for an ambiguous ending to work perfectly, that's what you need. Is where yeah. either option still um, supports the main theme and stuff of your story. Yeah, absolutely. And they they do such a good job of like weaving it in throughout. Because from the very beginning, from the very like opening couple scenes, they're already sort of mistaking like, is that is that Davis over there? No, mm-hmm. no, no, that's Smith or, you know, is whatever. Is that Ivana Trump? Yeah. <laughs> or even the fact that like he, he has his fiance uh, and then he has his mistress. Mm-hmm. I am blanking on both of their names. Um... Please, which is please the actresses me. or the characters? <laughs> the characters. Uh, well, this is, goes well in line with the film. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is kind of exactly what I'm talking about. Is and, and that's probably by intention. Reese Witherspoon and the other one who is almost perfect looking, as he says. But, but they almost look the same. Yeah, like like they are interchangeable. Mm-hmm. All and, the all the women are, They're and all the all men blonde. are, and yeah. all the men are. Yeah, I think there's one non-blonde woman, and it's like his quote-unquote cousin who he murders even she is like a redhead she is a redhead i don't think there's any just like brunettes no nobody with like some nice mousy hair i think everybody every woman in the movie is blonde i think probably (laughs) um but yeah yeah there's this so there's this everybody is physically resembling one another so there is this like homogenous population and so it's weird because what he wants to do is fit in mm-hmm. and he could take the fact that he's indistinguishable from his peers as the fact that maybe he kind of does. Right. You know, maybe his erratic, weird, only slightly contained psychotic behavior in public is this, the norm and standard. You know, maybe, yeah. maybe this isn't just what's about going on inside of Patrick Bateman's head. Maybe it's about what's going on inside of all of these men's heads. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because his, his goal is that he wants to fit in, but obviously he clearly does. Like yeah. you're saying. Yeah. But he also, he wants is, to fit in, but he wants to be the best. Exactly. He's very competitive. Yeah. Because, uh, in the classic, uh, business card scene, Oh God. he starts getting sweatier and sweatier as everybody oh, else. Everybody, everybody's card is a little bit better somehow um, than his 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 voiceovers are amazing like when he <laughs> when they go to the restaurant and he says when we walk in i have a, a moment of panic when yes. i think we're not going to have a good table but and we then, do and relief washes over me like an awesome <laughs> yes. wave and then later uh when he goes to uh cover up the murder of paul allen he says he's again he's like his apartment is slightly better than mine mm. and he has a slightly better haircut it than faces he the park clay yes. And it's it's clearly yeah. more expensive than his is. Yeah. And then when he brings the uh, uh, the prostitute back to that place, <laughs> this, she goes, place, this is place is nicer than your other one. Yes. <laughs> Not that much nicer. Yeah, yeah. And it's like ah, <laughs> uh, it's just it's this. It's he's such a great character, and he's played so well. Mm-hmm. And watching it again this time, I hadn't seen it in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all the way through anyway, and I hadn't really watched it. And the first scene. When they are, where it's him and his, you know, interchangeable buddies having lunch. Yeah. I got worried because on his first few lines, I was like, oh, this is really over the top. He <laughs> almost seems like he's doing like a Jim Carrey character. Um, but maybe that was the first thing they shot because he really evens it out and he really just is, gives it a fantastic performance. 
I also think there's something about like the longer you watch it, you get immersed in it. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, his his monologues, they're almost hypnotic mm. because he's got this very monotone kind of quiet, almost soft spoken way of delivering things. It's very measured. He's got his good non-regional dialect down. Yes. Um, Apparently everybody in the cast thought he was American. I don't blame them. I thought he was American for the yeah. longest time. Me too. For a really long time. And then I think in like the 2010s, probably, I saw him like give some acceptance speech and he was just like, hey. And I was like, yeah. what the apparently, fuck? Apparently he spoke only in an American accent the entire extent of filming he on is, and off camera. He is like so perfect for this role because I, I both think he is amazing and amazingly frightening as a human being. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I... I <laughs> Or I should say he can be, clearly. I don't know yeah. if that's his like resting state is, no, is no, terrifying. No, I'm, I'm sure it's not. But, <laughs> Christian uh, Bale, please don't don't send us hate mail. Yeah. I know you're listening. Um but yeah, they uh so it was only at the rap party when he ta- wow. addressed the crowd in his normal accent. That must have been and so a lot of people, insane. A lot of people thought he was doing an accent for the next oh, movie he was doing. Oh they my god. They were like, Oh, okay, English. he's practicing his British accent. That's cool. Yeah. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. Um, so one of the things that I noticed this time, obviously, I mean, this is fairly, fairly obvious, but, you know, paying attention to it analytically, it's the first time that it really stood out to me is how much Mm. mirrors Mm. are a motif in this movie. Yeah. Whether it's, uh, him looking at himself or his face being obscured in some way, the, uh, the perfect monologue at the beginning where he pulls the, the mask off of his face as he's talking about there not being a... Not there is no real Patrick Bateman. I definitely used a face mask while I watched this movie. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> I would have too if I. I should do crunches watching this movie. <laughs> well, like, not not to get off your topic because I think it's a great one. Um, but that that sort of I always remember that as the first scene him in his apartment. Mm-hmm. I always forget that it actually opens with them at lunch. Mm-hmm. My brain skips straight to him alone doing his sort of morning routine. And I love that it sets him up right away as a questionable narrator because he's like, you know, oh, I do this and I do that. And then I do my morning crunches. I can do a thousand now. It's like, yes. you, you fucking do not do a thousand crunches every morning. I don't know. They show him doing crunches later. I believe that dude can do a thousand crunches. But, but <laughs> it's it's just, it's such an absurd number. It is, yes. That it immediately, at least for me, makes me go, wait a minute, what? Yeah. So like I I feel like it sows at least a seed of of doubt in him right away yeah. that he's altogether connected to physical reality. And it's you know one of the things that I think is really great about the way that they play him is the way that he interacts with people through the movie changes mm-hmm. where he starts to break down and get more of himself coming out. Like you were saying, yeah. when he starts seeping in the stuff about the serial killers, yeah. and stuff, which every time I watch that scene where they're just hanging around talking about how no attractive women can have good personalities, oh, which Jesus. is just, you know, it's what it's, it's almost a parody of a scene of, of how awful people can be. Yeah. But, um, 
you know, he he drops in, you know, they're making all these, you know, misogynistic jokes and whatnot. Oh. And then he drops in the thing about Ed Gein. Yeah, he used to like, part of me wants to take that pretty girl to on a nice date and treat mm-hmm. her right. And another part of me wants to put her head on a stick. Yeah. And every time I watch it, I go, Patrick, you got to know your audience. Yeah. You got to keep <laughs> that like shit to yourself. chuckling to himself. And they're just like, okay. My favorite one is when he says something about Ted Bundy. And one of the, he's talking to one of the women and she just goes, who's Ted Bundy? <laughs> Mater D at Canal Bar? I feel like I have been that person. Yes. <laughs> with my true crime obsession. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Where I'm just like, well, you know what Dahmer did? And everybody's like, um, who, who, did you know him in college? Yes. Yeah. Jeffrey. Yes. Yeah, a friend my friend of mine. Jeff. Um, but yeah, because it starts off when he interacts with people in this movie, at least at the beginning, mm. his interactions are very calculated and they are very... Um, for lack of a better term, like cut and paste. Yeah, they're practiced. Yes. Yeah. Like the uh the the big one, I actually I actually had this on my Facebook page for a long time in my about me section. Oh boy. Which is when they go to the, the restaurant and they're arguing about like is Soho becoming too commercialized? Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. With like stash and yes. whoever. <laughs> and Bryce Bryce gives this Bryce, beautifully, beautifully douchey response of stuff that he like half heard yeah but is yeah. not a real thing yeah, where he's, he's like, like what, what about, about sri lanka the how massacre the, in sri lanka yeah, huh? how the sikhs are killing like tons of israelis yeah. which is not a thing that actually happened <laughs> yeah but it's, it's like it's like a facebook thing that's like yeah. something someone says on facebook yes and bateman responds with this very practiced probably read somewhere else yep list of things that are important it's his it's his miss america speech yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah. like you you can imagine even as he's delivering it then you can imagine him looking at himself in the mirror and practicing it alone at home yeah yeah like very very easily you can see you can see him doing that a lot more important problems in sri lanka to worry about like what oh we have to end apartheid for one and slow down the nuclear arms race stop terrorism and world hunger we have to provide food and shelter for the homeless and oppose racial discrimination and promote civil rights while also promoting equal rights for women we have to encourage a return to traditional moral values most importantly we have to promote general social concern unless materialism in young people Patrick, <laughs> how thought-provoking. And as he goes on, like when he goes on the date with, God, I can't remember her name, Bryce's <laughs> girlfriend. No, uh, Lewis's girlfriend. Lewis's girlfriend. Um, he, no- he tells her what she's going to order based on how it's described in New York Magazine. Yes, a playful little dish. Yeah, playful but mysterious. Oh, you, playful I think you'll but love mysterious, it. that's right. Yeah, and it's it's mysterious. all very, everything he does is very much based on how it's supposed to be because it's yep. part of this. Even his, his music choices where he loves the pop music of the day. Yeah, there's, I, for, I, you know, uh, Wes and I just did, we were doing Real Ripe and Real Rotten uh, Oscar mm. edition. Oh. And uh, the lowest rated best picture movie that we covered was Joker. And as I was watching Joker, I was like, you know, despite what people may or may not say about this movie, Mm. it's undeniable at this point that it has created an iconic sequence, which is the Joker dancing down the stairs. That's already Mm. like it's that's going to be something that's going to be in in like montages and stuff. And that's that's like an iconic classic kind of movie scene 
the 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 Huey Lewis scene, yeah, is <laughs> like right up there. Yeah, my all time the- iconic scene. There's like three of them in this where like there's oh, three yeah. scenes in this movie where I go like these are all timers. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. the Huey Lewis one, the uh, the the business card scene. Mm-hmm. It's just they just dig right into the core of that stuff and it's it's just yeah. perfectly yeah. executed no the the huey my that's one of the things where i was saying that you know definitely my older brother uh introduced me to this movie because we used to walk around asking one another do you like huey lewis in the news mm-hmm. and my poor again my poor mother was just like you you don't even know who that is like what are you what are you doing children oh yeah but it is it's such a pitch perfect scene like it, it toes it toes that line between like horror and glee because you can't help but identify somewhat with Patrick Bateman because he is your protagonist he's mm-hmm. he's the character guiding you through this you're getting his inner monologue the whole movie and you know how much he hates Paul Allen right and you've seen Paul Allen be an asshole mm-hmm. And so when he's kind of gearing up to kill him, you can't help but be a little excited with Patrick Bateman. Right, right. So it does this wonderful trick of like, you know, this guy is a monster, but you also are kind of like, yeah, 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 do it. Come on, come on, do it. (laughs) You like Huey Lewis in the news? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. When sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey, Albert's trying Yes, Alan? Why are the copies of the style section all over the place? Do you, you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> no, Helen. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87, Huey released this for their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Right there, you reservation at Dorkin now, you fucking stupid bastard! Yeah, and the thing that's so that I love about the uh, the music critique scenes, for lack of a better term, uh, I know in the book those are presented as essentially just inner monologues, free from context, where yes. it's just like five pages on Huey Lewis and the News or something like that, yeah. or on Phil Collins. That's not in the context of a murder scene. Having taking that content from from the book and putting it on top of these scenes is just such a great way to adapt that because like hearing him say that stuff out loud Mm -hmm. to other people and have him hearing him talk about like pop music as though it's like high art yeah and you know the the deeper meanings of hip to be square it's just like it's it's it just further works for him as a character who is desperately trying to sound important but doesn't actually 
know what any of that means. Is that, have you seen Joker? No. No. Well, there's one this thing that he does where he's got he you know he he laughs a lot and he can't he's got uncontrollable laughter. Yeah. But he's got this other laugh that he does, which is a complete affect mm. that he does when he thinks he's supposed to laugh at stuff. Mm. So, uh, but he doesn't understand how jokes work. So he's at like a comedy club and he's laughing at the wrong parts of the joke and stuff. And it reminded <laughs> me a bit of that where it's like he's Bateman has constructed his entire personality is a construct based around what he thinks he should be be into and what he thinks he should like yeah uh which is why he's so empty inside because uh, he's got there's nothing there is no patrick bateman he's just right. an idea as he says yeah there's no substance behind anything that he's fixating on in terms of like his appearance his clothing his job being with the right woman the music it's all just kind of window dressing to disguise that there's nothing else there mm-hmm. which is what makes him both a frightening character, but also like one that's kind of hard to be scared of in real life. Yeah, and I think that's kind of part of uh, the cleverness of the of the way they constructed him is because mm. he is this on the surface of the movie you're watching. He is this like violent person, but he's ultimately kind of harmless. He's ultimately toothless. Yeah. Um. And he is so over the top that it is almost hard to be afraid of him. Yeah. Because he is so silly. Yeah. Um, I think some of my favorite scenes in this movie are the scenes with Willem Dafoe. Yes. Who oh is, my God. Who I somehow forgot was in this yeah. until he showed up in, in Bateman's office and I was just like, oh yes, I love this. Yeah, this was part, this was in his like... I guess he kind of still does this, but I feel like there was a run for him in the late 90s, early 2000s where he was taking a lot of chances on like lower budget stuff. Mm. So like if you needed a star yeah. who was not like a superstar, but he was a name, you could get Willem Dafoe. Like this is around the time he was in Boondock Saints. I was just thinking that like I I feel like that character in, in Boondock Saints and this one are like cousins. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> actually pretty pretty similar. If you need if you need someone with a name to play a cop, you get yeah, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, and ex- a slightly eccentric cop. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think this would be a good point before we talk about him a little bit more to talk a little bit about the interesting production history of this, which I didn't mm. know anything about until I looked it up. Mm. Uh, apparently it was optioned right, almost right away after the book came out. Mm. Um, and originally it was, uh, Stuart Gordon who directed reanimator was going to do oh. it with a script written by Brett Easton Ellis. Huh. Uh, Stuart Gordon had a lot of, and uh, Johnny Depp was supposed to play Bateman. And uh, he had a lot of ideas that didn't quite jive, like he wanted to do the whole thing in black and white. Um, And so that fell apart. And then next, David Cronenberg was supposed to do it. I knew about Cronenberg. With with, uh, Brad Pitt playing Patrick Bateman. Yeah. Apparently, I think that would have been a very different movie, but maybe still an interesting one. Yeah. I I would be curious to see what that would be like, because mid-90s... Um, Cronenberg is a really interesting time for him yeah. where he's trying to get away from the gory stuff and he's mm. doing like just weird shit which oh, I yeah, love because didn't he sorry with this didn't he want like he didn't like a lot of the the, the like graphic murder scenes yeah. so he was like no 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 we're not gonna do those yeah. and like we're not gonna do this he didn't, uh, he didn't want to do the script with that Brett Easton Ellis wrote um, mm. because it was too violent mm. and I think he or someone else wrote it and then it wasn't working so he dropped out then Leonardo DiCaprio was going to play Bateman for a while. Wow. And Oliver Stone was either going to direct it or produce it. What? I can't tell you what? how much I don't want to yeah. see that movie. No. 
because I feel like it's just gonna it's just, it's gonna look like natural born killers essentially. Yeah. I mean, there's like a little bit of a chance that it could be pretty good, but I don't think it would be good yeah. as it ended up being. Yeah, I think it would lose a lot of that ambiguity that yeah. that we were talking about that we both like so much. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, this was DiCaprio essentially coming off a of Titanic. Oh. So he wanted a shitload of money, which ballooned the budget up to about $40 million. Ooh. So that ended up not happening. He and also looked at the time like he was about 15 years yeah, old. he still does. I, I <laughs> You know, I... <laughs> don't really buy him in essentially any movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Shut, Shutter Island. Oh, I hated Shutter Island. <laughs> he seems like he's trying so hard, and it, I find it kind of off-putting. I actually think that this is for a different podcast, but I think that's what makes him really good in The Great Gatsby. Okay, I actually haven't seen that one, but like I remember, that's that whole character is that I'm yeah. trying really okay. hard. Sure, yeah, I, I, give it a chance. There was a run of movies where he was actively you could tell he was trying to get an oscar yeah and it's just like he's trying so hard you can just see him trying to get on, past his baby revenant, face though listen <laughs> the person who should have got an oscar from the revenant is tom the bear hardy. tom hardy is amazing oh yeah leonardo dicaprio all he had to do was grunt and puke yeah you know yeah. so i anyway I, He's, I like him in the Tarantino movies. He's pretty good with Tarantino. Yeah, Tarantino yeah, knows yeah. how to direct I think, him. yeah, you're right. Anyway, um, actually, before DiCaprio and Oliver Stone came on, Mary mm. Harron actually was attached to do mm. it. But oh. then DiCaprio wanted to do it, and they were like, uh, we should. Pro- we need to get somebody else. <laughs> so after it fell apart with oh, DiCaprio, um, Mary Harron came back on, and they said, well, we need you to get some stars in this movie so she got reese witherspoon and willem dafoe mm. and instead of it costing 40 million dollars it cost seven million dollars to make this movie wow. in, in the year 2000 wow which is it's 20 years ago but still that's I mean, seven million in 2000 is basically nothing yeah yeah i'm I, that's that's very impressive and and at the time christian bale was kind of an unknown right yeah this was yeah. uh this was the he did this the same year he did this. He was in. He was the bad guy in the Shaft remake with uh, Samuel L. Jackson. What? <laughs> and then after that, he did the Dragon movie, Reign of Fire, which I, I love. would just like to mention that Clay is doing this all from memory. There is no googling <laughs> happening right now. And uh, after I think after Reign of Fire was Batman, unless he did the Herzog movie before. I no, I think he did that afterwards. Oh, no, he did The Machinist first. Oh, yeah. right, The Machinist. He did Jesus. the Dragon movie, The Machinist, and then he did Batman. Uh, and it's funny because wow. when I heard that they cast him as Batman, I thought that was fantastic because I knew him from this and I was like, oh, mm. he would be, he's got that, he can turn on a dime from the, yeah, the, the yeah. kind of light, light guy in a suit mm-hmm. into the darker thing. I thought he would be great. Yeah. Uh, so you're welcome, America. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, uh, Willem Dafoe is, is just a great, He's so great. He's a great pinch pinch hitter isn't the word I'm looking for, but like uh he uh he's a he's a great fourth 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 in the lineup to to he's a cleanup hitter. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> I was for. gonna say, do we yeah. have another sport I metaphor watch, that you can go for? I know, I watch more hockey than I do baseball, so uh he's the seventh man. Oh god. Um but he's he just gets in there and he gives you these great scenes where he's interviewing Bateman about the disappearance yeah. of Paul Allen, which has some of my favorite lines in it. Oh, where uh, where he asks him, he's like, no, I, I, I don't remember what I was, I, I actually, I was seeing a play that night, which was, oh, Bra- oh, Africa, Brave Africa, 
It was a laugh riot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like, well, the, I just I like that it recurred. The the videotapes line recurs there. Yeah, yeah. He I, does I, the, I think the, I was returning some videotapes that night. The bit about the he uh, he he says Paul Allen was part of that whole Yale thing. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, who's you know that that whole Yale thing? It's that closeted, closeted homosexual thing. Um, yeah, but that's uh, the uh, the really interesting thing about the scenes with him is that apparently the director shot shot those scenes three ways hmm. where uh she told Willem Dafoe to play it once as though he suspected Bateman had killed Paul Allen. Yeah. Once as though he didn't suspect him at all. Hmm. And then once as though he wasn't sure. And so the versions that you see in the movie are a mix of those. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to play it. That's such ever... a great way of 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 directing and shooting that. Yeah, you because you never really get a read on what he thinks. Yeah, he's yeah. kind of he's kind of a peripheral character. You don't really need that character. No, but it but it gives you an interesting insight, and it applies a pressure to to Bateman that I think needs to be applied to help him get to that sort of like crescendo of insanity with the that that is kind of kicked off by the feed me a stray cat ATM. Yes, yeah and um, my other favorite line is when he asks him if he's listened to Huey Lewis in the news and he says no I don't like him he's too black sounding <laughs> oh my god yeah and, the, and that's just like, just Huey's like and, Huey Lewis is the whitest person in the world and, the, and then and Bateman's response is kind of like Fair enough. You know, you know like, he doesn't really he's argue sure, it. Yeah, yeah he, he, he's not like taken aback at all. He's just like, oh, all right. Yeah, and that final Salient scene that point. they have too where Bateman is like visibly sweating. Yeah, and he's like jittery and he's making weird faces yeah. and he keeps trying to like fix his hair and he's just so clearly falling apart. Yeah. Um, yeah, they they use him very effectively, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, to just kind of accent the different, different points in the story that yeah. he pops up in. And, uh, Paul Allen. I killed Paul Allen with an axe in the face. His body is dissolving in a bathtub in Hell's Kitchen. I don't want to leave anything out here. I guess I've killed maybe 20 people. Maybe 40. Uh, tonight I, uh, (laughs) I just had to kill a lot of people. And, um... I'm not sure I'm going to get away with it this time. How do you feel about the violence in this movie? Do you feel like there's not enough of it? Do you feel like there's just enough? Do you think there's too much? It's it's interesting because I always recall this, maybe again because of the association I have with the book, as being a very violent movie. Mm-hmm. And it definitely gets very violent. But there is a solid... I mean, up until he... He kills the the homeless man and and also, you know, spoiler alert, but also PSA, the dog dies, um, yes. which deeply upsets me every time. <laughs> um, but I, I can't remember how far that is into the film, but it's pretty far in. I mean, this this movie is what, an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes? Hour 40, I think. Yeah. yeah and I, I would say it's a solid half hour to 40 minutes in when you first get a real glimpse of him perpetrating violence. And even then, yeah. you don't you hear it, but you don't see it. Yeah, there's a lot of they really kind of uh, slowly dial it up from him. Yeah. It's actually uh, it's hinted at heavily, and then sort of gradually, like he 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 picks up a girl, and 
then the next morning he's lounging in his office and he's playing with a lock of blonde hair mm. and he's rubbing it against his yeah. face. And or it's even like, before that, when he uh, seemingly picks up the woman at the, the crosswalk, and yeah. the next scene is him in the uh, dry cleaning place arguing yes. about the crayon apple he's yes. spilled all over his sheets. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I actually think for me, the scariest scene in this movie is him just quietly coming up to her on the sidewalk at night. Mm. Well, it's just like that kind of thing seems to me like a detail that maybe a male writer director yeah. wouldn't pay attention to. Yeah. Because men tend not to understand that. And how scary it can be. Right. Like, okay, yeah. someone walks up to you when you're alone out on the street at night, but you're in a you're in a busy city. I had a friend of mine mm. say to me once, mm-hmm. and I, I'm a... I'm a, a big guy with a beard and yes. tend to have long hair. Yes. A friend of mine told me, if I didn't know you, I would probably cross the street if I saw you walking towards me. And I was like, I, <laughs> I, it if, really if, took me aback, but I was like, I, okay, I yeah. get it. Yeah, that if, makes sense. If, if I was alone at night, somewhere fairly isolated, and I did not know you, mm. and I don't think I would cross the street if I saw you walking towards me, but if I noticed you walking behind me, mm. And you weren't like either letting yourself fall back or just like crossing the street on your own or just outpacing me really naturally, then I would cross the street. I would, there no fucking way. <laughs> Let's talk about all the other ways that I'm terrifying to people yeah, who mean, don't know me. I have been told that most people think immediately that I don't like them. I had that exact impression. <laughs> it's just a defense yeah, mechanism. I just, I was just like, God, I don't know. Like, Caitlin's really nice. Caitlin seems to like me. Her boyfriend hates me and I don't know why. You know, you know, uh, like back back to to the the walking alone at night thing. That to me is the most frightening scene because it's very realistic. Oh yeah, and yeah. it is also like you can't help but like what would you do in that situation? Right, they're both just walking down the street, and he keeps pace with her too. Like once they start crossing, yeah, but, but, but she's already been disarmed by him. Yeah, but, but yeah. she has, but she hasn't. Like I don't fully buy that she's been like that that he's soothed her. Mm-hmm. Like, because he says, hello, and smiles, and she doesn't really smile. She just looks at him and goes, hello. Mm-hmm. Then she gives him that second look where it's sort of you're like, oh, hmm. I mean, hmm. I don't I don't if know. If it was Frankenstein, she'd go, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of that, but I I, I don't think she, you know, she doesn't give him like a big smile and no, like a, no. hi. Yeah. You know, she's just sort of like neutral back to him. And even there, too, the, the great thing that they do where they shoot them both from behind and yeah. you see the sign that just says don't walk yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no i mean that because that that scene it's it's so for most women i think it's very realistic and relatable mm. in a way that the rest of the movie is not because either we are not wall street big wigs in the 80s so we can't relate to that lifestyle or things have gone insane to the point where we're shooting kittens into atm machines and blowing up cop cars with our handguns yes like so i i I think it it gives a sense of real dread Mm. that the rest of the movie kind of doesn't get like you you worry for the other women in the movie um there is that that oh god the the scene with gene in his apartment Mm. and the whole time i'm just like oh god like i i know i've seen this movie before i know she makes it but even now watching it i was just like no no, yeah. please, you're See, so nice. You don't, please, you don't deserve this. Oh, God. I think that scene is so funny. 
it's the it's it's just the black humor. Of, I'm not saying. Oh yeah, no, the black no. humor of it is like when when she when she says, "Is that duct tape?" And he's like, "Yes, I." I needed, needed to tape something. Taping something. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, it can be says, both. You know, it can the, be the, the the nail gun. Oh my yeah. god! Oh, and I lost he's standing there the behind her, and he's that. like, mm? "Yeah, no, it absolutely can yeah. be both." Yes, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, and, and that's what's great about it is you yes. can read it both ways, where it's like she doesn't know what's going on and yeah and she's very innocent and, and she's very trusting of him because it's like oh no he's patrick bateman he's he's the vice president and i you know i'm his assistant and even she slights him when she doesn't even mean to by he's like yeah. where do you want to go and she says oh, i want to go to dorsey and he's like yeah of course yeah you know yeah. like it, the you one place that i can't get into yeah so i i have a question about that scene mm. why do you think he lets her go um hmm no, no, no! None of the other women that he picks up and brings to his apartment, aside from you know the fiance and the mistress. One of them's Courtney. I can't remember which. Um, Courtney is Lewis's fiance, I believe. Okay, I think. Um, but you know they they are untouchable because they're sort of built into his um, social network. But yes. the other women, the escorts, the sex workers. The women he picks up at the club or on the street, they're all fair game. And he, you know, whether or not, if, if even if we're arguing, he doesn't actually kill anybody. In his mind, he does. He kills all of those right. women. I, but why not Jean? No one would probably notice if she if she stopped coming into work. He could just say, "Oh, unreliable assistant. Better hire somebody else." Yeah, I wonder if it is. Well, I was gonna say if it has some something to do with how innocent she is, because she really she's really yeah. oblivious to what's going on, and she's not a, she's not dumb, but she's no. just like it's almost if I were to put myself into the mind of Patrick Bateman, uh, it's almost like killing her is beneath him. Maybe I don't know, mm-hmm. but I because I mean the thing that diffuses the situation is the is the phone call yeah. from his from his fiance. And that sort of, I think that sort of like brings him back to earth a little bit. I think it does too. And I also think that there's a, I, th- I think he has very much a connection with like the the whole sex and death thing mm-hmm. that the like don't put out kind of stuff that we've talked about with other horror movies mm-hmm. um, where it is like a sexual act too. It's like a sexual gratification yeah. for him. Yeah. And I think in that moment he just can't like... Yeah, his, He's his just, girlfriend called and killed the mood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, like he just just like can't do it anymore. You should probably go. Yeah. <laughs> do you like her as a character, Jean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I really, I do because you know it's it's clear that she's competent and good at her job, and she stays on top of everything for him, and and sort of manages this giant psychotic man child's life. Mm-hmm. Um. I feel bad for her in some ways because I think she's very lonely. Mm. Um, and I think she's so close. She has such a proximity to this lifestyle that seems from the outside so glamorous. You know, they go to Dorcia and they have these, you know, beautiful lunches and they all wear, you know, he's wearing his Valentino couture suits. Mm-hmm. Um, Your compliment and, was sufficient, Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> That's another really good one. Um, but yeah, she, she's like, you know, close enough to it to, to, to get a little taste of it, but she's perpetually on the outside. It sounds like 
from what she does say at that that night in Patrick's house mm-hmm. that she's uh what does she say that she uh keeps getting involved with unavailable men. Mm. So it's like she's been unlucky in love. She seems like she works really hard and gets no respect and no recognition for it. Right. So yeah, I love I love poor Jean. I hope I hope it, after that movie she quits and finds a job working for someone who's not fantasizing about putting a nail gun through her head. Yes. I also like that she doesn't ever really. Um, uh, I guess she's not really in it enough. She's not a central figure enough to really do this, but uh, mm. she doesn't really ever try to put on any airs or anything. You yeah. know, like she's just like you're saying, she's on the periphery. The one little bit she gets, she's like, I mean, it would be nice to go to Dorcia, but it's it's not yeah. it's not something she's like actively trying to insert herself into. You know, yeah. And I think there, I think there, another movie might do that. Yeah, make her a little bit more like willing to throw herself at him yeah for the chance to like enter that world yeah or be more um uh like she's she's not really on top of all the stuff that he cares about like he's yeah yeah you know f- she forgets to put the coaster down and she yeah. you know she yells at her when she doesn't put the the spoon in the carton of the sorbet yeah thing. and and she's never wearing the right clothes yeah. and her she's well, come got- on she's prettier than that yeah i know She's um, got like the right, the blonde hair, but the wrong haircut. Yeah. All the yeah. women have the big 80s hair and she's got this very straight, simple hair with the bangs. Yeah. I think another movie would have her or another story would have her sort of um, catching, catching all the stuff that he's missing to mm. help him stay up on his, what he's supposed to do. Like, uh, you know, if he's missing his glasses, oh, she's got his glasses or, you yeah. know, oh, don't forget your Walkman or like, did you know. Being a little bit more of an extension of him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like and, like just constantly providing him with Yeah, being all a little, little bit things. more desperate to yeah. to be at the same level. Deferential in yeah. a different way. And I like that she's sort of just a peripheral character who gets drawn into it, unfortunately. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and she's very like especially compared to most of the other people in this movie, she's she's very realistic. You know? Mm. She lives in New York, she works this job, like she's not she she lives the sort of life that is relatable. That's understandable and like, I don't know, just compared to the other characters who are so far afield from normal life and mm-hmm. reality, she's like the most grounded yes. of them all. And that scene when she's at his apartment does have another one of my go-tos, which is maybe, I don't know, not really. <laughs> It is so, it's so well written. This, it is, this, yeah. The book, the movie, like just those lines are, and, and Christian Bale delivers them. Yes, he's, he's perfect. Oh, God. Um, I, you know, one of the things I find interesting about him and his progression, we were saying that the violence starts fairly implied and kind of ramps up. Mm-hmm. They actually do a fairly good job of sort of showing you the evolution of a serial killer. Yeah. Where, you know, he kind of uh, starts off kind of light and then just gets crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier and then kind of goes into a frenzy. Yeah. Which is ultimately the point where they usually get caught or yep. they die or whatever. Um, but again, like we said, that doesn't happen. So it's like it has that, that arc but without the cathar- catharsis. Yeah. And, and he's killing people who are closer and closer to him. Yes. Yeah. Which, which is another you, thing. That- are you surprised that he doesn't go after... Uh, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, actually, yeah. I feel like in a a worse movie, he goes after <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, 
Yeah, towards the end that he's just like, like when he breaks up with her, instead of breaking up with her, a, 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 like you said, a different and a worse movie yeah. would have him just go kill her. And I think that's... Or kill Bryce. Bryce, yeah. I, uh, or I Lewis. Think... You know, he almost kills no. Lewis. Oh, God. When he washes his gloves afterwards, <laughs> oh, so great. Oh, God. Um, yeah, oh, I think, I think having him go after, go after Evelyn would be Evelyn. Evelyn. Oh, I have nice. it pulled up here, so I, I know Thank what the you. Are. Thank you. I think having him go after Evelyn would be too easy and would kind of miss the point of his character because yes. again, he doesn't, he's not doing anything that really matters. Going after Evelyn matters. Right. Well, in his world, she's a quote unquote real person. Whereas these other, the people who are actually his victims, other than Paul Allen, Mm-hmm. Um, the people who are his victims are not quote unquote real people to him. Right. They're right. outside of this upper echelons of society. They're just like girls at bars or sex workers or, you know, I think he doesn't think of Gene as a real person. Right. Right. Uh, soundtrack. I mean, <laughs> this, I would say this movie and probably the wedding singer, were my mm. my two, the two movies that really got me to do a deep dive on eighties music? Interesting. Yeah, because when I was younger, I had a disdain for eighties music, and then when I got wow. to college, uh, my friend lent me the greatest hits of Duran Duran, and I was like, <laughs> "And you've never been the same." These guys are actually a really good band, and that <laughs> led me down a path of discovery for all that stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like for me, when I first started, when I first watched this movie, I missed a huge section of it because I was so unfamiliar with the music. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, you know, say say I first I first saw this movie in or read the book, whichever in like two thousand and five. Sure, I don't know how realistic that is. Um, I would have been like sixteen, seventeen mm-hmm. at that time, and eighties music was just not a thing. Right, like none of my friends listened to it nobody in my family listened to it um it was it was really before it had its big comeback yeah yeah yeah. so a lot of this like even when he talked about whitney houston and he's talking about whitney houston to uh the sex worker and his cousin the 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 redhead no he says that the sex worker is his cousin oh okay the redhead is a friend of his from somewhere from somewhere all right so they're 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 drunk and 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 stoned because he's drugged their wine um and he talks about whitney houston and they start laughing at him Mm -hmm. and they're like you listen to whitney houston you actually listen and i'm i'm here watching on Patrick Bateman's side being like, yeah, I fucking listened to Whitney Houston. Well, when She's I, amazing. When I first saw this, I felt the same way as those two women where yeah. it was like, yeah, what the fuck are you listening to Whitney Houston for? Because to me, I did not, I didn't really connect it with the cultural commentary on like the eighties and the obsession with wealth and mm-hmm. consumerism and, and all of that. Like I, that level I was just completely absent for me until I got older and I rewatched it and, and like learned more about what the eighties had been like. Mm. I mean, say what you want about hip to be square. It's fine. <laughs> I agree with everything he says about <laughs> Phil Collins and Whitney Houston. You know, I'm starting to notice a little bit of a pattern clay, uh, which is, uh, that you keep agreeing <clears throat> really heartily with the, uh, psychotic men. Listen, in the movies that we talk about, I, they just have good taste in music, is all I'm saying. And, you know, all work and no play makes Clay a dull boy. Isn't that the truth, though? <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, this was like I uh, if the wedding singer was my introduction to like really to eighties music, this was my next step in where it was like, oh, New Order is a thing. Oh, mm. uh, Information Society. I don't know who those guys are, but now I, I love the stuff from this movie. <laughs> Uh, and the stuff that's not pop, the, that that stuff, the licensed music was actually the the most expensive thing in the movie. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the stuff that's more, uh, what's the word? Um, score based music. That stuff's really nice too. It's really yeah. kind of ethereal and sets the mood really well. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because there, you know, the scenes of him just sort of out walking through the city, where, like I said, I find him his most menacing mm-hmm. when he's kind of in his very nice suit and his nice black coat. Mm-hmm. And his leather gloves and kind of walking around like a hitman or something. Um, yeah, just has, a fashionable man yeah, in 1987. I mean, terrifying psychopath. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. The score there is so different from the m- moments where he's actually going to or is currently killing someone. Mm-hmm. Where when he's sort of walking around being ominous, it is that sort of like yeah, that 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 more traditional score that sort of is eerie but not doesn't lead you too much Mm. um but then when he's like you know got the stereo on in his or paul allen's apartment Mm -hmm. um i think that that like that disconnect between the sound of the music which is all like pop music and very or like the greatest love of all Mm -hmm. and then he's gonna you know, drop a chainsaw down a stairwell onto a girl. As you do. Um, I think that's another thing that makes this movie so funny, but also so jarring. Right, yeah. Where you, yeah, you're so used to with horror movies, the soundtrack doing a lot of heavy lifting and sort of guiding you about like, now it's time to be scared. Yeah. And in this, instead of getting that auditory signal, now it's time to be scared, Mm. Instead, you're getting sort of like Huey Lewis in the news and well, then you know, horrible murder. It's interesting because one thing that horror movies actually do really well is, is recontextualize music like that. Because there's, I've seen a lot of movies that will take a song that is not necessarily a uh, creepy or scary song and the way in which they use it yeah. makes it that much creepier. Like, picture, like anything in any David Lynch movie. Or yeah, uh, remember yeah. the episode of the X Files with the mutants who lives at the, oh, with under the bed home. Yeah, that actually that might that be one. one of my if we can go really off list <laughs> one of my wild cards. Once we once we cover the whole list, maybe <laughs> yeah. we move the TV. <laughs> uh, but that's like that's they use some random song from the fifties that I can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah. it's the same. It's a very it's a pop song. It's a love song. But in that context, it's terrifying. Yeah, but there's there's something about doing it with these really like peppy upbeat almost kind of dancey 80s songs that seem like and i don't know if it's just my understanding of them they they seem so like like this is the music that your dad listens to Mm -hmm. like not not my dad but like i like i assumed this is like what parents listened to Mm -hmm. when i was a teenager i was like yeah i don't know who this is this is probably stuff that like my mom and dad like listened to um and then yeah juxtaposing it with this crazy man who's gonna like stab you in bed yes final <laughs> like, question yes has this movie ruined susudio or for you <laughs> or made it better <laughs> um uh, probably made it better yeah yeah i don't love that song <laughs> to begin with so at least at least now when i hear it i can laugh a little bit yeah yeah, yeah. i think it's pretty good <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, so wrapping up. Yes. Placement on the list. Uh huh. You had some thoughts about if this even qualifies as yeah. a horror movie. I don't think it does. I think I agree with you. Yeah, I th- yeah. this one was kind of a um, even even the you know when when we first pulled it out of the randomizer, and I I hadn't kind of realized it was on the list until then, yeah. and I was a little bit like, wait, what? Like I think of it as like a psychological thriller. I honestly kind of think of it more as a comedy. Honestly, it's 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 a very black comedy. I don't know. It's it's got it's tough for me to say thriller just because it's so like there's not really a lot of thrilling stuff in it. Yeah, you know, it's not really like a a ratcheting the tension type movie. It's I, kind of know, a character study. I think it does ratchet the tension yeah. though, because because I think you're you're walking this tightrope line between like, is he or is he not going to get caught? Is he or is he mm. not actually doing these things? Do you, as the audience member, want him to get caught? True, because he is entertaining. Yeah, he is fun and he's funny and he's like kind of quippy and and and. You know, watching it is it can be really hilarious, but also if you're suspending disbelief and and gonna lean fully into the conceit of this guy is a psychotic murderer, mm-hmm. you should want him to get caught, right? But you kind of don't. So so there is this like you know the escalation of tensions of like watching him fall apart. If it if it is a thriller. I would say it's a very subversive one. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I totally I totally agree. I don't I don't think any one genre really fully yeah. fits this, but I I think it's closer to to some sort of like psycho analytical something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, get, I, I hesitate to call it a thriller. I guess it would be a, a more subversive thriller for me because when I think thriller, I think of something that has really high tensions and mm. some sort of chase involved okay okay so like maybe if the if the willem dafoe detective character had played a bigger role and it was a little bit more like a cat and mouse game if you think of like silence of the lambs yeah silence of the lambs is very much like tensions ratcheting up we have to stop buffalo bill yeah uh or fatal attraction fatal attraction uh Glenn Close is getting crazier and crazier. She's coming yeah. after my family. Yeah. I have to stop Glenn Close. <laughs> you know, like I mean, don't we all have to stop Glenn Close <laughs> from winning an Oscar? Apparently. <laughs> oh, wow. Has she, I don't think she's ever won. Which is I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't, don't think know. So. I hope she has. She deserves it. Yeah, she's very good. Um anyway, would, um, would you say that that this is American Psycho more of a horror movie than Silence of the Lambs? No. Yeah, I, I that's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah, I it's it, I I find American Psycho funnier than I do anything else, I think. Um cuz it know is I what that says about you. Well, but. it's I it, uh, it's a it's a laugh riot. Um, <laughs> it's a laugh riot. Oh, Africa. Yeah. <laughs> laugh riot. It's but it's like it's just such a well-constructed satire. Yeah. That I find it to be more of a satire than anything else. Yeah. You know, like if if that counts as a genre, then I would say more than a horror movie, more than a thriller, it's a satire. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I would agree with that, but I just I think that doesn't work so well with film. Sure. I think with okay. with books that that you could say as 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 a book, this is a satire. Mm-hmm. And everybody would say, "Ah, oh, yes, a satire, that genre. I understand." But with film, it's a little more like 
we have these bigger buckets for film that mm. we kind of expect everything to sort of fit in. It's it's an action movie. It's a horror movie. It's a drama. It's a romance. It's a comedy. Yeah, you don't you don't have a satire section at Blockbuster. Right. <laughs> you don't have anything at Blockbuster anymore, Clay, because they're gone. Which in and of itself is a satirical comment. <laughs> um, That's just reality. Yeah. Oh, I miss video stores. Um, I miss returning videotapes. Maybe you're right. Am I am I an insane person? I'm starting to think so. Well, look, we'll talk about it later. It's yeah. fine. Um, yeah, so I, I have a, I have a tough time with the position on the list for this one because mm. I don't even know if it should be on this list. Mm. But at the same time, keeping with our theme of ambiguity for the night, um, it's such a great movie yeah. that it should be on some list. I don't <laughs> like it's so well done in, in, for what it is mm. that I, I definitely think it deserves a little more recognition than what it got. Both both the film and, and oh, the yeah, book definitely. Um, Fun little bit of trivia that I didn't oh, put in before. Um, when Leonardo DiCaprio was attached to do the movie, uh, Gloria Steinem uh, advised him not to do it because it was such a misogynist part <gasps> and she oh, thought it would ruin his character. Yeah, because so many of his fans were young women. Yes. At that time, and well, still to this day, Gloria mm. Steinem was dating Christian Bale's dad. And eventually became Christian Bale's stepmother. Oh. And he claims that he did not take this part as a slight to her. But who's to say? Wow. Drama. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's it's tough because I, if you're saying list of the 200 best horror movies of all time. Yeah. I don't put this on the list for yeah. that. However, I don't think it's out of place. If that makes sense, I I, I, I think in terms of cate- categorizing it and trying to sort of fit it into a box, mm-hmm. it's impossible. Yeah. No one's ever going to be able to to say definitively this movie is this genre or this genre and not this other thing. I like, think it's on the list because it's called American Psycho. Yeah, and it's a it's got killings in it. Yeah, I think if it was called Patrick Bateman, Vice President at Pierce and Pierce, it would not be on the list. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know though, but I I think for me it's it's difficult because with a with a limited list of of 200 while a generous list, mm-hmm. you're still leaving off quite a few horror movies that are more traditional horror movies. Yeah. That are now not on this list and are making room for things like American Psycho and I believe Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, it's got to be on there. Um and a couple other things where I I skimmed through and just kind of went, "Huh." This is a, like honestly would I would I replace this with Starry Eyes? Mm. I probably would. In yeah, in terms of a horror movie, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this uh, the whole conceit of our show is a bit bullshit, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. And well, goodbye, everyone. As a way to further show that that's the case, I hit the randomizer earlier <gasps> today. And um, the next one that popped up was number ninety, and it's created a bit of a controversy. And I ne- I want your input on this. Ooh. Number 90 is Let Me In, the remake of Let the Right One In, the Swedish vampire movie. Uh-huh. Let the Right One In, not on the list. Huh. I don't know what to do because I feel like there's a lot of people who heard me say that and their heads exploded <laughs> because of how <laughs> how much people love Let the Right One In. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel like anybody really talks about the remake. 
Yeah. Not that it's bad. I said it was fine. Um, but I should we do the remake or should we call an audible and do the original? Oh God. I mean, or we can punt it and, and re randomize and come back to it later, but that might feel a little too much like cheating. Mm. Uh, I'm so torn because like, you know, we're, we're, we've sort of set this structure up for ourselves. I feel like, we're kind of duty bound to adhere to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to play by the rules, we're going to play by the rules. I, I, so I kind case, of think we have to, because then where, you know, where does it end? Right. Does that mean if we hit the randomizer, we come up with the ring or you, or should we watch the Japanese one? Because True. it is objectively better, That's but it's not on the list. Yeah. Yeah. If we're, I, I guess we'll stick to the rules that it's just a weird one. Like I can, I can understand the ring. Yeah, I can't, yeah, because the ring was such a phenomenon. Yeah, this this one is kind of like it kind of came and went. And nobody really saw it. I, yeah. But anyway, all right. I guess we're sticking to the rules, yeah. and we're gonna <laughs> next time we will be back with number ninety. Let me in the American remake of Let the Right One In. Another book I've read. Oh, good, <laughs> excellent. I'm just here to be a I'm giant glad, nerd. I'm glad you've read all the books that I'm never gonna read. So. Oh, that's okay. And then you reference all the movies that I have never seen. Oh, so there we go. perfect. Yeah. So uh, thank you guys for listening, and uh, if you like the show, if you want to rate us or review us on iTunes, that would be amazing. We would really appreciate it. That would be great. And uh, thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Clay. We will see you next time with Let Me In. And until next time, don't just stare at it. Eat it.